Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. On the show today, I interviewed Dr. Wendy Ellis. She's amazing. I first heard her speak at a summit on early childhood and the way she talks about and kind of reframes the focus on resilience and early childhood is just really insightful and innovative. I'm so excited to introduce my guest to you. I met Dr. Ellis at a summit on early childhood, childcare, and workplace policy. Of course, that's one of my all-time favorite topics, as you may know if you've been listening to this show for a while. And when I heard her speak about resilience and her take on ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences model, I just knew I had to have her on the show. So while the world and the U.S. in particular might be in breakdown, there are leaders that are already rebuilding and actually facilitating the emergence of a new version of the systems and structures that were not built for or by women and certainly not by women of color. Dr. Wendy Ellis is one of those leaders. She's an assistant professor in global health and the founding director of the Center for Community Resilience at the Milken Institute for Public Health at George Washington University. Dr. Ellis has spent the last 15 years developing and working to grow a resilience movement to address systemic inequities that contribute to the social and health disparities that are often transmitted in families and communities from generation to generation. The Center for Community Resilience seeks to improve the health of communities by enabling cross-sectoral partners to align policy, program, and practice to address adverse childhood experiences in the context of adverse community environments, or as Dr. Ellis has coined it, the pair of ACEs. This innovative framing, this innovative framing of ACEs with an explicit focus on equity and prevention, has had a substantial influence on local initiatives, programs, public health initiatives, and local, state, and federal policy. And using the pair of ACEs framing, building community resilience networks has successfully led systems and policy change focused on addressing longstanding economic, social, and health disparities by partnering with community, integrating service delivery, and building political will for change. The strengths-based approach is aimed at building the infrastructure to disrupt cycles of structural racism, foster equity, and promote resilience in communities by improving access to supports and buffers that help individuals, quote-unquote, bounce back and communities thrive. Leveraging her extensive background in communications, in 2022, Dr. Ellis produced a documentary called America's Truth that follows her team's innovative approach to centering conversations on structural racism that galvanized a resilience movement to foster equity through systems and policy change. Dr. Ellis holds several leadership positions in public health, including chair of the National Academy of Sciences, enhancing community resilience in the Gulf states 
Rights Committee, Scientific Advisor to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Prevention and Injury Center, and the National Academy's Culture of Health Advisory Board. In 2018, Dr. Ellis was selected as an Aspen Institute Ascend Fellow to support her leadership in developing cross-sector strategies to address childhood trauma, foster equity, and build community resilience. As always, all the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com slash radio. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Join us in the academy for community mindfulness practices and strategy to live your well woman life. I'm speaking with Dr. Wendy Ellis on the show today. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. It's so good to talk to you. I was taken by your comments at a recent summit where I heard you speaking and I thought I have to have her on my show. So um, I just love talking to high achieving professional women who are just really doing something innovative and out of the box and even your career path, uh, I would love to hear about. So Dr. Ellis, let's start with telling listeners, who are you in the world today? You know, besides obviously being a mom to two college kids, which is really more important of an achievement than anything else. You know, I'm a I'm a dreamer that figures figured out how to bring that dream alive. I think that's really important for women to hear um, women of any age and certainly of any background that we come from. Not that I um, am blind to many of the obstacles that are particularly put in um, in the way of women achieving, particularly women of color. But I also think that there's something to be said about our collective strength. And um, and so that is that is really, I think, when you talk about who I am in the world, I'm a person who never gave up on my dream. I'm a person who invited being underestimated because I was really happy to um, shatter anyone else's underestimation of what I could achieve despite the obstacles that were. In mm-hmm. front of me. Okay. And what was the dream? I think the dream has always been justice. Uh, you know, I grew up as a child um, facing a number of traumatic events early on, even before I was born. Um, you know, my, my father beat my mother every day that she was pregnant with me. So, you know, I, I I grew up despite the fact that the person who half of the person or the unit that brought me into this world was really trying to destroy me before I got here. Um, that kind of trauma, you know, in, enduring that in the womb, enduring it as a very young child because he still lived with us. And um, the multitude of traumas that came from that. I mean, I myself have an average childhood experiences score of eight, um, which if you go to the literature, tells you that I should not be on this podcast right now. I should not have the title of doctor. I certainly shouldn't be um, director of a center and have two healthy college age students. And yet, yet all of those things I made possible with a community of people that supported me. So that dream of justice, really, I began to understand it the more I understood how my story beat the odds. And I thought, that's not fair. First off, it was never fair what happened to me. But the idea that my success is against all the odds, to me, that's an injustice. 
and understanding why that was such an anomaly or seen as such an anomaly is really what fuels what I do today. Yes, I put the science of adverse childhood experiences at the center of it, but I use it as a way for us to understand not only what are the traumas and the adversities that individuals experience and certainly in place, but how we make it so difficult for people like myself to bounce back, to bounce forward and to thrive. And so that's what, you know, really fuels me today is this idea of like, I shouldn't have to be this anomaly. I shouldn't have to be looked at as some like, wow, she's really incredible. We all have the ability to support people like myself. When I was younger, I had teachers, I had religious leaders in our community. My, my family, my grandparents had neighbors who cared, you know, all of these things that help us to understand from the science of resilience, what helps people bounce back? What prevents the experience of trauma in the first place? And so that, you know, is really why for me, this dream of justice is something that really isn't a dream. It's something that's attainable. And I look at it every day when I look in the mirror. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you have such a personal story about that and professional and and now your your professional work is growing into really making systemic change, and um, so so looking at it on all the levels, right? I can relate to because when you have something that is so personal and you're trying to make it work in the world, it all sort of comes together. So, um, Dr. Ellis, you talked about um, you referred to the center that you direct and the science of adverse childhood uh, experiences and the science of resilience. Tell listeners a little bit about the center and your work and what you're working on. And um, yeah, we'll start there. Yeah. So the Center for Community Resilience here at the George Washington University School of Public Health, it was born out of the essential question of if we have so much overwhelming evidence that the exposure to adverse childhood experiences early in life are really associated with these negative outcomes in adulthood. So adverse childhood experiences um, from the classic definition were experiences of trauma, neglect, um, household disruptions such as parental um, incarceration, divorce, suicide, maternal depression. These things that we know create an adverse environment, household environment for, for children. But then there's also this, this piece that when the science of adversity and, and trauma and ACEs began to gain traction, that the immediate response was, how do we go in and fix people? How do we teach parents how to be better parents, to be more positive parents without really zooming out and saying, well, wait a minute, these things don't occur in isolation. Um, you know, we have to think about environments, but that wasn't part of the conversation. And so that's where I said, wait a minute, if we're going to talk about ACEs as an adverse childhood experiences, then we need to talk about the other ACEs adverse community environments. And so that's where I came up with this, this terminology of the pair of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences in the context of adverse community environments, which really helps us to begin to think about root causes. So oftentimes I'll tell a story about, you know, a mother who's taking her newborn for the first well baby check. 
And the pediatrician may notice that the mom's not making eye contact and, and perhaps seems a bit withdrawn. And the clinical um, appraisal of that may be, oh, it's maternal depression, postpartum depression. Let me make sure that she gets connected to a psychologist or psychiatrist. But instead, perhaps have an inquisitive um, conversation. Did you sleep well last night? Are, do you have someone um, for emotional support? Um, are you back at work? Are you still breastfeeding or do you need to supplement because you're going to work? And what are the financial implications of that? You see, we're beginning to start to understand for that mother, it's not merely making a connection to that child. It's also all of these other concerns about, you know, household stability. Do I pay? How do I pay the rent? If I go back to work, how do I pay for childcare? Um, if I decide to supplement my breast milk with with formula, how do I afford formula? I mean, there's so many other compounding factors that are in that soil that that family, that mother, that child are rooted in that really help us to understand the outcomes that we see, meaning the branches and the leaves, that interaction with that mom. And so that's really what our work is rooted in. It's it's not just thinking about what are the specific interventions that we can do for individuals. It's a, how are we creating much more thriving environments for communities so that we better support both mother, child, as well as fathers. You know, we need to build really mm-hmm. strong communities. And that means that we have to think about How do we invest in a way that provides the best runway for our children to take off and to thrive? So that's where, you know, that's really at the heart of our work. We we do a lot of work with understanding systemic, the role of systemic racism, the understanding of inequity, whether that's by race or by place or by income, education. There's so many different ways to, to measure these things. But at the heart of this, it's because we want to build more positive environments for our children. Yeah, and it it really is um, very aligned with uh, public health. I mean, it's a it's a public health approach, right? And we're going to take a short break. I'm speaking with Dr. Wendy Ellis, founding director of the Center for Community Resilience at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University, and we'll be right back. For 25 years, I've been working in social justice and systems change because when women and girls thrive, families thrive, and whole communities thrive. What I realized through my work was that there are systems at play that work to keep women leaders functioning at half their capacity because of overwork, overwhelm, and burnout. The very nature of our linear strategic systems of power that have worked so well for so many high-achieving women are the exact reason we're crashing and burning at such high rates. So we end up with highly capable women leaders who are unable to realize their potential, whether it's in their health, their relationships, career, prosperity, or social impact. I'm Giovanna Rossi, host of The Well Woman Show on NPR. And what I do is work with high-achieving women leaders who feel stuck in their careers, overwhelmed by trying to do it all, facing a health crisis or unhappy in their relationships so that they can finally enjoy life again, be the leader they know they can be and make the impact they're here to make with their families and communities. It's my mission to use a feminist lens and the Well Woman Life framework to challenge the status quo and dismantle systems that work to maintain unequal power so that all women can thrive as leaders in their communities and families. 
Get started on your Well Woman leadership journey by applying for the group program at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. We're back on the show with Dr. Wendy Ellis. You're talking about the maybe the first point of contact some parents have is the medical system, and they're not trained necessarily in public health, and they're not asking these broader questions. So, is is that part of the work? Is 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 that intersection? Yeah, that that intersection. I would also say that we can't always assume that the first point of contact is pediatricians. We would hope in an ideal world that a child is being seen by a pediatrician and and in that, you know, that dyad or triad, whether that's a mother and the father or just a mom and the in the child or a dad and the child. And and so, but I think that when we think about this and zoom out, pediatricians have a role, but so do child care providers, you know, early childhood and uh, education providers, educators writ large, really. But then also we have to think about, unfortunately, our child protective services, because, you know, when we think about oftentimes why children are separated from their homes, it's not always about it's not always about trauma and abuse. It's how we decide whom is abusing a child or how we define neglect. Now, in that story that I just described to you, you can imagine if that mom is in that home and has maybe two or three kids and is really struggling to put food on the table, how it may be interpreted as neglect if her children are going hungry. But she may be doing the best that she possibly can. And so we have oftentimes the first point of contact isn't a pediatrician that raises a concern. It may be a neighbor. It may be an educator who feels it's their obligation to do a mandatory report, which becomes a process of criminalization. Hmm. And so how do we begin to help all of the touch points that have an opportunity, not just to intervene, but to actually lift up and help our families. So we have to also think about how we define intervention, because particularly from a child protective, a so-called child protective system, our interventions are traumatic in themselves, as opposed to building foundations that get us from not just resilience, but ultimately hope. Because if you're if you're in contact with child protective services, for most families, particularly families of color, all hope is lost because mm-hmm. we know what uh, disproportionately what the 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 data show us is that disproportionately children of color, whether that is black, whether that is American Indian or Latino, that these children are overrepresented in our welfare systems. They're also overrepresented in our juvenile justice systems. And so, again, the question is not whether or not parents of color have an inherent inability to parent, but how are we running our systems that these are this is the way that we solve problems of need versus defining it as a issue of neglect. Yeah, I I so hear that. And I appreciate your work in re um, redefining so many of these terms and also redirecting the conversation, I think is what you're also doing. And, and I love the pair of ACEs, adverse community environments, adding that on to 
to adverse childhood experiences. You also talked about hope. And I think you have um, something that you share where you, you, instead of we're talking about ACEs and all of the things that we lack and, and things that were wrong. You, you said you have an acronym that is hope. Could you share that? Well, it's not my acronym. It's actually my good friend, Bob Segge, the work that he's doing at Tufts um, Medical Center. And he's taken, you know, we work very closely together and understanding, you know, what, first off, there's the analog to the parabasis tree. We have the resilience tree. So if we're successful, what were the branches and leaves? What would be the outcomes for our children and family? It's not just the reduction of, say, juvenile incarceration. It's not just the reduction of abuse cases, but it's actually the production of outcomes that we know will help lead to much more thriving outcomes. And in that soil, instead of saying, you know, well, we'll have healthy schools, we also really get to the policies. Well, what would be the policies that would produce that? What would be the environments that would produce that? And so Bob um, working, you know, in, in concert with that idea of like, how do we create positive childhood experiences? So PCEs, not ACE, um, he has the four building blocks of hope. And those four building blocks of hope really help us to understand what are the foundational pieces that all children, regardless of education levels of parents or income levels or community environments and certainly race, what are those four things that science shows us that both parents and children need to actually foster hope in a community? And the first one is relationships. We all need relationships. You know, what is the most sure way to lose hope is to feel like you are stuck alone, right? Well, what fosters hope is this idea that, you know, we have relationships within our families and that children are making positive relationships, but also that adults are supported in relationships. The second one is the environment in itself. You know, is it safe? Do you have equitable access to the supports and resources that you need? Is it stable? And that includes not just where you live, but also where children play, where they learn, and even where the adults work. Then there's engagement. And you'll see this in my community resilience framework that we have to have environments that foster social cohesion, the connectivity between people that live in a neighborhood. What that that fosters civic engagement or social capital. And so Bob also has that engagement piece in the hope framework where it's, you know, how do we do how do we have environments that promote belonging, connectedness? similars identities so that we're all working together for the similar outcomes in our in our community. And the last part of this is of hope is emotional growth. You know, when we think about how do we provide an environment, interactions and support so that children learn self-awareness, self-regulation, and that we are actually producing children who can go out into the world and be positive contributions to their environment because they're, they're surrounded by people who are similarly providing positive contributions to the environment. Oftentimes when we talk about this work, whether it's Bob or myself, we talk about this balance of hope and fear. And so, you know, he has this framework, but there's also a validated hope scale. This is something that's not just, you know, oh, it's ephemeral. Isn't it wonderful? We should all work, wake up with hope. No, it's something that we can actually measure. And many of the things that I just described those are those are measures of understanding what is the level of hope in a community. And hope is not something that is just instinctual. 
This is why we're living in this age of fear because it, fear is an instinct. It is a primary instinct. It is the reason why we are the apex um, species on earth because it has taught us the fight, the fight or flight um, instinct there. Hope, on the other hand, is a secondary emotion and it must be nurtured. And so that's why Bob has this framework. That's why I have it embedded in the community resilience framework so that we can begin to understand what are we, when we're making these investments in community, what is going to actually help to promote hope so that we can create more positive experiences for our children. I love this. And um, Dr. Ellis, is there anything else you wanted to share? There's so, I feel like we could go into so much detail on any of these areas, but is there anything else you wanted to just leave listeners with? I would leave this bit of advice. Um, Develop sisterhood. Um, I think what amazes me, uh, the more success that I achieve, the more I need my sisterhood. I need other women, and regardless of color, regardless of education, background, or training, women, promoting and supporting women is so important. And so I would just say to all the women that are out there listening, you have no idea that you are a sister to someone. You have no idea when you will need a sister. But the sisterhood is strong and make sure that you have that with you. Um, carry that with you at all times because it is, it's an amazing gift. It's an amazing resource. And there's so much joy to be had from just being a part of the sisterhood. Mm, great advice. Okay. I've been speaking with Dr. Wendy Ellis. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for the well woman show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.